1971, John Lennon wrote and uh, recorded a song called Imagine. Some of you guys know it. Um, actually, you know, the song has, has just kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. And he goes on to sing about, imagine that there's no, there's no division, there's no property, there's no possessions, there's nothing to divide us, there's nothing to cause us to, you know, turn away from each other. And the song, like I said, it's been, man, it's been a cover song time and time again. I, I read this week that it's, it's like number 30, I guess, out of the top 100 songs that have been covered over the, over the years. Um, everybody seems to have recorded it. And as recent as 2012, it was the theme of the closing ceremony at the Olympics in, in London, or there, there in Liverpool. So it, it, it just seems to take on a life of its own. And it was written as a kind of as a protest song at the height of the Vietnam War. And, and it was Lennon's way, and, I, you know, it came out later on that his wife had helped him write the song. Um, but it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could just imagine that, that our difficulties would go away? If we could just, within our mind and just kind of within ourselves, kind of just imagine that things are okay. They're just okay, you know, and we're going to be okay. Things are just going to work out, right? No. We can't imagine that. I mean, good grief. If, if the last year and a half, you know, hasn't been enough to show us that, that this world is, I mean, and, and just imagine there is no pandemic, okay? Let's just imagine there's no COVID. And, <laughs> no, I'm not going to write that song in my mind. That's nowhere near the notes. I have no idea. I can't believe that just came out. But, but no, just, just not just the pandemic. I mean, there's been all kinds of natural disasters over the last year and a half. There's been cyclones, earthquakes, floods. There's been tsunamis, you know. There's been evil of all kinds going on in the world. There's mass shootings every week. There's burning in our city. There's police officers shooting. And there's police officers being shot. There's there's just something in the news every day, it seems, that just over and over. And we can't imagine that away. We can stick our head in the sand, but it is not going to go away. And then we have our personal issues, our family issues, our health, the health of people that we love, our children, our grandchildren, our jobs, our schools. It goes on and on and on. Now, as Christians, we we have or should have. Uh, the biblical insight, the biblical perspective that shows us that, yes, we do have we do have an enemy in this world. Now, we battle against our own flesh. We battle against our own sin and we battle against a world around us that is contrary to God and his ways. But that world is under the control and under the sway, our Lord tells us, of an evil one, of an evil personality. And he's known in the scriptures as, as Satan. He's called the dragon. He's called the devil, the ancient dragon, the serpent, the king of darkness. We've, we've seen that he's the thief. He's the liar. He's the destroyer. The scriptures show us that. 
And we should, as Christians, recognize what is difficult for a, a lost world to understand, that this, this evil dominates our world, okay? It is behind much of what we see and experience. And Daniel, in his book, seems to tell us that he is indeed the, the power behind dominions and governments and authorities. And Paul tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers that are in this unseen world around us. We, we should have that perspective. And in the book of Revelation, we have this unveiling. That's the, the theme of our series as we work our way through the book of Revelation. It's, it's this unveiling. And what that is, is this opening of a spiritually, of, 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 of a closed window. It's an opening into a spiritual reality that we can't see with physical eyes. And in Revelation chapter 4, we're told, And as I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after that. And John says that once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat on it had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. So starting in Revelation 4, we are taken into the very throne room of God, and it is at the center of the universe. It is then and it is now. Amen? It is God on the throne in the center of the universe. In Revelation chapter 5, the attention turns in that throne room, not just the one on the throne, but the one standing beside the throne, who has the appearance of a lamb that had been slain, but is standing. And he is the one and the only one who has the authority to take the scroll from the right hand of God Almighty. And then we begin to see this unfolding of the scroll, these seals being unsealed by Jesus as he just sovereignly releases and opens up for us this, these different chapters, these different occurrences in this picture of the end time. And those first four seals that we saw were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw that as they kind of rumbled across. The fifth seal was the picture of the martyrs there below the throne of God, crying out to God for vengeance, wondering how long before you avenge our blood? How long do we wait, God? The sixth seal that we saw was the sky being rolled up, the mountains being crumbled, and we saw slaves and free, we saw kings, we saw powerful, we saw everyone there in verses 15 and 16 praying for the mountains to fall on. It says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For their great day of wrath has come. And then the question comes, and who can stand? Who can stand? Now, we've sung the answer already, thanks to Martin Luther. Though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So, so we have that answer that we've sung since the Reformation. But we had the answer clearly before us here in the book of Revelation. Who can stand? And that answer is given for us in Revelation 7 as we see this 144,000 sealed and then this picture of a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and language and nation standing before the throne and saying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 8, there's this picture of the prayers of the saints being lifted up like the altar of incense in the tabernacle before God. 
And the angel takes those prayers and mixes them in this picture that we have with the coals that are on that altar, and he throws them back down on the world. And pictured in that is God's judgment being poured out in response to the prayers of God's people. Our prayers matter. God hears them, and he's answering them, and he will answer them. So that prayer of the martyrs, how long, O God, is answered with this picture of judgment that's poured out. And these judgments flow out first, as we saw two weeks ago. There's judgment on the natural world, on the trees and on the plants and on the grass. There's judgment on the seas. There's judgment that comes on the fresh water, the rivers and streams and the ponds, and turns them into poison. And there's judgment in the heavens as the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars, somehow lose a third of their light. And this picture of darkness is cast over the earth. And at the end of that chapter... In Revelation 8:13, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. And that brings us to where we are today. Those other judgments that came on the earth didn't touch humanity. These judgments that we're about to see are unleashed on humanity and humanity alone. And this judgment that will fall on a great portion of mankind is, 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 I think, one of the most fearsome pictures in all of Scripture. As Jason said, Revelation 9 is hard. It is hard to read. It is hard to teach. It is hard to preach. It is hard for even to envision. All right? Hell comes to earth. And there's no good news in it, except for the fact that there are those that are sealed, that are protected. It's an ugly picture, church. And it's a beautiful picture of the reality of God's response to sin. And, and we need to see it that way. And, and I've kind of divided it up. It's going to be a little different. We're, we're going to go through it verse by verse, but we're not going to just touch on a verse and then go to the next and then go to the next. We're going to look first off at the characters that are involved in this picture of judgment. And, I've, and, I, and I see six different groups, okay, or individuals. So the characters involved. And then we're going to see the carnage that's unleashed on this world and on, the, on mankind. And finally, we're going to see, as this, as this, as this says, the, actually, is that the, is that the one I sent you, Brian? Take it down, bro. That's the one from two weeks ago. That's my bad. All right. Sorry. Okay. That's why I don't use PowerPoint. It's just a distraction. All right. Especially when my brain is, is you know, kind of going off in all kinds of tangents. Um, so what it was supposed to say up there is what you see at the end of chapter 9. Just follow along as I read this text. All right. Revelation chapter 9. We've heard the eagle cry out these woes, three woes. There's three trumpets left in verse 1 of chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. 
They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And and the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. And Father, we, <laughs> we need to pray. We ask you that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see what would be veiled to the human eye, to the physical eye. Lord, we see the, um, we see the disease, we see the fruit, we see the hurt, we see the sin, we see the rottenness. But we don't always see the root. And even behind that, Lord, we don't, we don't often see your mercy and grace. So help us see that in this hellish picture that's there before us today, Lord. Um, your word, God, is given to us for our good, for our edification, for our building up. 
to train us, Lord, to teach us and to equip us for your work. And we pray that that would be the case, Lord, with this text in front of us today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this, and as, I, as you were listening to that text, I hope you heard, and I'm going to touch on it again in just a minute, that as we read through this text, the question is not always necessarily, why is it so bad? The question could be, why is it not worse? I mean, given, given what we see in the depravity of the human heart, given what we see in the ferocity of our enemy, what we see in the brokenness of this world, the question would be, why is there not more of, the, of this bad stuff that we see? Right? I mean, why, why literally are we not killing each other all the time and stealing and doing? What is it that restrains that, that holds that back? And it is the sovereign mercy of God. And we see that even in this text. And so let's look at these characters that are involved in God's judgment first. And the first one we see here is this is this star fallen from heaven to earth who was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. All right. So we see that in the beginning and and later on in verse 11, this same fallen angel we see is named as the king. He is the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon. In the Greek, he is called Apollyon, the text tells us. And, And the word means destruction. Or destroyer. So that's his title and that's what he's called here. And, and some commentators say that he is just simply a fallen angel. Okay, just an evil angel. Some say he is, no, he is a good angel. He's not a bad angel. He's a good angel who's given this key. Others hold that he is in fact Satan and a few say that he's Jesus himself. So there's all kinds of opinions on this. Now, I believe that it is Satan, and this, I just—I'll tell you why in just a minute. But there's pastors and, and scholars that I trust who hold that view, and as as with most of Revelation, uh, I'm learning from others and forming opinions myself, and kind of coming to a position there. But this one seems pretty clear to me. I, I, this one was not—I I believe it's Satan. He is called in the scriptures the morning star. He is called the son of the dawn. We looked at this back when we went through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once, you who once laid low the nations. Later on in Revelation 12, it tells us that the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. And Jesus said in Luke 10, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. So I believe this is Satan and I believe he is given, keyword there, given authority over those that are in the pit. And, I, and I'll say it now and I'll say it again later. He is given authority. He is given permission. He is a dog on a leash. Now in Revelation 9, he gets more chain. But he's still on the chain. Okay? So there's this, this fallen angel is this first character. The second one is those that he seems to rule or reign over. Okay? Verse 2 says, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. And so you get this picture. This pit is opened up. 
my brain kept going back over the last few weeks as I've been working through this. Okay, I'm still thinking about Lord of the Rings. I'm thinking about the, the smoke coming up. You know, I mean, all these images are there thanks to thanks to the movie. And, I, and sometimes that's okay. All right. Okay. But I'm going to tell you that what we see here make the orcs look like Cub Scouts. Okay. Makes them look like Cub Scouts. So this evil horde out of this black smoke that's pouring up from the bottomless pit comes these locust-like creatures, okay? From the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So immediately, you need to recognize this is apocalyptic language, okay? These are, these are like locusts and like scorpions, okay? Later on, they're going to be like horses, all right? We need to just allow this vision of John really to kind of overwhelm us in our in our understanding and just allow the text to give us this picture, not so much of details, but just how awful it is. Just how awful this is. So they're released from the pit. The shaft is open. And seven times in the book of Revelation, we're going to see a reference to this bottomless pit, if you will, this prison of demons. And it seems to be a place where, if, we, if we're trying to reconcile this with the Gospels, there's places in the Gospels where demons are given free reign, okay? They're free. They can go and do. Not these. This seems to be the, you know, this seems to be the, the place where they're, the worst are locked up. And they cannot freely roam on the earth. In Luke chapter 8, you remember Jesus came to this man who was possessed by what the demons called legion. What is your name? And they answered legion. All right? And it said, they answered legion because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him, okay, these demons begged Jesus repeatedly in order that he would not send them to the abyss. So these demons did not want Jesus to send them to where these were coming from. I see that there. Peter talks about demons being cast into a place of, of torment in Second Peter 2.4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So these are released from this place, and they are compared to locusts. But these aren't swarming insects. These aren't the kind that go and eat all the corn and all the wheat and then all the leaves off the trees like we saw in the plagues of Egypt. That's not what these are. And, and, and Jason read you this text of this, this judgment that came from God, this, this judgment that took the form of locusts then, but this is not a literal swarm of locusts. I don't believe that. That's not what John is describing for us here. I believe John is stretching his, the Holy Spirit is allowing John to go to the, as far as he can go with his language to describe what really can't be described. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So there's two things going on here. There is a physical response to the sting and there's a visual response, just the angst that comes from being scared by what you see. It's just riddled all the way through this. Verses 7 through 10, notice it says the appearance of the locusts, which were like scorpions, by the way, 
were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces like human faces, hair like a woman's hair, teeth like a lion's teeth, breastplates like breastplates of iron, noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And if that's not bad enough, they have tails and stings like scorpions and they have the power to hurt people for a limited amount of time. Five months. What does that mean? I'm not sure. I don't know. Some people say it has to do with the normal lifespan of a locust, which would be five months. I I don't know what the five months is. I know, though, that it's a limited amount of time. All right? There's, there's... God is, God is in control of this. And, and these, these creatures, these demons, this demonic horde that's coming up out of the bottom, they have this powerful ability to, pain, to inflict pain. And it's a strange mix of demonic and human, right? You see that? I mean, they, they have faces like humans, so there's intellect there. There's, in, in some ways, just this hellish kind of beauty, maybe. Hair like a woman's hair. They have teeth like lion's teeth, and they're protected by armor as if they need it. What, what is humanity going to do against this? From their heads to their tails, they're just instruments of torment. Now, the, the, the attempt to, the struggle to, and, and the desire to understand this has caused all kinds of interpretations, just, just all kinds, okay? And, and I've said this before, and, and I have come to the understanding that for us to understand the book of Revelation, it is important that we not look forward so much as we look back. Look back and see what John saw and understood, what his readers saw and understood, and go back to the Old Testament, which is where they were looking back, and see how the Old Testament helps us understand this. Looking forward in this particular case with apocalyptic vision like this and trying to understand it in terms of modern military apparatus and warfare is foolishness. That's not a good way to try to interpret Revelation in my opinion. John speaks of locusts and scorpions. In his day, that would have been the two most feared, destructive pests in that first century world, okay? And he's not thinking about Sherman tanks and Huey helicopters and nerve gas coming out of the tail of that helicopter. That's not what John is thinking about. And that's not what we need to think about to understand that. I think it just distorts the understanding. How Lindsay, many years ago said in his book that John's speaking about the Bell Huey helicopter, the gunship, and the sting of the scorpion was nerve gas spraying from the helicopter's tail. And the 200 million soldiers that we're going to see in a few minutes were coming from the east, from China, prepared for the battle that's going to take place there at Armageddon. I don't think that's helpful. And I don't think that's wise when we're trying to figure this out. That's what makes Revelation so hard to understand for many people. Is that we don't just let the scriptures interpret themselves. Let it it interpret itself. You see, in John's day, the first thing you did when you got up out of bed was you checked your sandal to make sure there's not a scorpion in it. In some parts of the world, you still do that. You make sure there's not something in there that could sting you and potentially take your life. 
And so the people who first heard this from John, they understood exactly what the danger was. They understood exactly what the pain was. These pests were everywhere, and it was painful to be inflicted by them. And so John is using apocalyptic language to describe a demonic horde that's released under the sovereign hand of God. It's a picture of God's judgment and God using his own enemies to bring it about. That's, that's what we see here. And it's interesting because James Hamilton, one of the commentators that I'm using, makes an interesting point that I think is helpful. These creatures that come up out of the pit, here's what he says. And he goes back to these living creatures that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation around the throne of God. Okay? He said the living creatures at God's throne reflect the character of God. These scorpion-like locusts reflect the character of Satan. The best that Satan can do is twist something that God created good. That's the way Satan tempts us too. Everything that tempts us is a twisted, perverse, satanic corruption of something that God meant for us to enjoy. So I think that's a good way to see this. That it's, that it's taking everything that we see pictured, and this will continue to develop in the book of Revelation, okay? Satan will continue to disguise himself as an angel of light and take what God says is glorious and good and pervert it and turn it. We'll see that more and more. The third character in this is, is those poor creatures who are under attack from this demonic horde. Verses 4, and six, 4 through 6 says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or the tree, or only those, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So it's a targeted group of people. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Look at verse 6. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die. And death will flee from them. Back in chapter 7, we spent a lot of time talking about God being faithful to his covenant promises to his people. That picture of God's covenant promises with the 12 tribes of Israel is what's pictured there. And those that God has called, those that are his, he seals. And that picture is innumerable later on in chapter 7. More people than anyone could even see and understand. And these that are sealed are those who have who have been, had their robes washed and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, it tells us. So those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have turned to God by His grace and been washed in the blood of Christ are those that are sealed and marked. And it's a mark of ownership. It's a mark of possession. It's a mark of purpose in our life. And I remember we look back at Ezekiel chapter 9. Just listen to verses 4 and 5. This is this picture of God unleashing his judgment on his people then, but it precursors. It looks forward to what happens in Revelation. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So there were people there in the day, of Ezekiel's day, who saw what was going on with the sin and rebellion, and their hearts broke, and they yearned for God to move, and God said, those people are mine. Mark them as such. And to the others, verse 5 says, He said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. 
So those that are sealed are safe. Those that are not sealed are not. And our minds should go back again to the Passover. That blood on the doorpost on, that's spread there by the Hebrew children. And, and, and the Hebrew letter there, I remember we looked at, was the Hebrew letter Taw, T, which looks like the shape of the cross. I mean, ultimately this sealing is God's protection. It's God's ownership. And we'll see later on. The mark of the beast, it's not some crazy thing that we might want to dream up in our head. It's not a shot. It's not an inoculation. It is a characteristic of those who follow Satan. Just as the seal is the characteristic of those who follow Christ. So as we see this, those who are not sealed are not safe. Those who are not sealed are tormented by sin and the demons of hell now. And by their sin and demonic oppression eternally. That's the picture. That's who's targeted there. Look at the fourth group, the fourth characteristic. The fourth group of characters in this, it's these, and, and this sixth trumpet now, we're going to step ahead, okay, to the next woe. The first woe is past. We're going to come back to it in a minute, but I'm just moving through this in this, in this setting. The first woe is past. Now look what it says in verse 12. Two more are still to come. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice of the four horns of the golden altar before God. So here's this altar again there. The four horns were the place in the Old Testament where the sacrifice would be tied. But there's an angel there. And that angel is given a command to give to four other creatures. And so saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The numbers are unimaginable. We're talking in the billions here, given where our world population is. And these four angels here, I I believe, also are demonic in some way. We never see a picture of God's angels bound. Okay? God's angels, those good angels, they're never bound up. Here we have these angels that are bound. And by the sovereign command of God, through the work of His angel, they are released and these and notice that they were they were on the far side of the Euphrates River. OK, and again, we need to understand the context of John's day and the Hebrew people and who the enemies of God had been historically up until this point in time. Genesis 15 marks the Euphrates River as the limit, as the northern limit of the of the promised land. The enemies of God came from across that river. They had always come from across that river. It had been the Assyrians. It had been all of those who had come from beyond the the Euphrates. And so that river became symbolic of the enemies of God and of the hordes that would come. Later on, as history went on, the the Parthian army came from beyond the Euphrates. And I was reading about that this week. They were a constant threat to the Roman peace that was there. And Jewish apocalyptic literature even points to the invasion of them as these heathen forces. And these Parthians, the scholars tell us, were skilled horsemen who, listen to this, they would file down the hooves of the horses and file down their teeth. And they would braid their tails and put in those tails sharp instruments, kind of like a cat of nine tails. And so these horses were terrible. They were fearsome. 
If they, if they stomped you or kicked you, they killed you. If they bit you, they hurt. They inflicted pain on you. Their tails were lethal weapons on the battlefield. And so these were the ones who would come from the Euphrates. And, and I believe to John's day, they thought about this. This was something that was burned into their mind. The enemies come from up there. Come from across the river. And so that's the image that's given to us here of this army that comes from across the river. But look at how the army is described. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. If you're keeping score at home, that's 200 million. 200 million is the size of this army. And look at the horses that they're riding. Breastplates. And think of the colors, if you will, of fire and hell. The breastplates were the color of sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Smoke and fire and sulfur come out of their mouths. So these are horses like creatures that have the ability to breathe fire like dragons. It's apocalyptic literature. Okay? I don't believe this is cobra helicopters. I think this is, this is a picture of the power of the demonic force that is opposed to God and his people. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads. By means of them they wound. Do you see this, this devastation that this army brings? And, but notice what John is saying. Notice what this apocalyptic literature says. These demonic warriors looked like or they were something like, or they resembled, they had hair like, or breastplates like. It's almost like John is, is unable to describe, and these are pictures, word pictures, helping us understand the demonic power behind this. It's like this. It, it's not that exactly, but it's like this. And, and it's repeated over and over and over. I think if anything, this points us to the reality. And I, I don't think we need to be reminded, but in this context, it's good to be reminded of just the reality of the demonic enemy that we face. The reality that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. John Phillips said this. Modern man professes not to believe in demons, but they exist just the same. And moreover, they are clever with diabolical cunning. Man's attitude toward the demon world may well be likened to man's attitude in the dark ages toward bacteria. Listen to this. If we could be transported back to London in the year 1666, we would find ourselves in a nightmare of a world. The great bubonic plague was at its height. The sights and sounds of the city were like the terrible climax of a horror movie. It was generally believed that fresh air was the culprit. The College of Physicians at the time recommended the frequent firing of guns to blow away the deadly air. People sealed themselves in their rooms and burned foul-smelling messes to ward off fresh air. Chimneys were sealed so that the smoke would come into the rooms and people choked in the suffocating stench. Outside... Pails of black smoke hung over the city. People sat tightly sealed in their chambers, grimly determined to endure the smarting smoke, convinced that thus they were immune to the plague. They could, we could tell them they were wrong and that the plague was not caused by fresh air but by germs, microscopic organisms spread by fleas, but they would laugh at us in scorn. Modern man has adopted a similar attitude toward the demon world. 
We'll tell them that the world is in the grip of Satan and that he has countless hosts of invisible demons to aid him in his dark designs against mankind. And we can say these unseen beings are intelligent and that before long they're going to be joined by countless more of their kind worse than themselves. And people will look at us with pitying scorn and suggest that we peddle our theories to the publishers of science fiction. But it is the truth all the same. Philip says, once the pit is opened, the world of men will be invaded by something far more dreadful than the plague. A virus all the more deadly because it's able to think and because it directs its attack against the soul rather than the body. It's a horde, all right. It's a demonic army. And all of these characters, as terrible, as pitiable as they are, Need to, we need to understand that they fall under the hand of the sixth character that I want us to point out. And that is the holy God, sovereign, just in his punishment, and absolutely in control of everything. The book of Revelation is full of what Greek scholars call divine passive. Okay? The divine passive is the passive voice that while a verb may not tell us exactly who it is that's orchestrating or carrying out that action, the book of Revelation is full time and time again of what is known as a divine passive. That what we see unfolding and the action we see taking place comes about through the hand and purposes and action of God. And it's over and over and over in this passage. Verse 1, he was given. Verse 3, they were given power. Verse 4, they were told not to harm. Verse 5, they were allowed. Verse 15, the angel who had been prepared was released. And so while this is called a passive, a divine passive, God is anything but passive. He is anything but passive in this. And it is he who orchestrates. It is he who gave that, that, that scroll to Jesus. It is Jesus who sovereignly unseals it one after the other, after the other, after the other. It is Jesus who gives permission for these trumpets to blow. It is Jesus who we will see soon gives permission for the bowls to be poured out. Divine passive is not a good word for it. God is at work. He is acting. He is moving, controlling events that are not visible to our eyes. But church, we walk by faith and not by sight. And how important that is when we go to the book of Revelation and when we look toward the end of what we see taking place. Again, I, I just quickly quote James Hamilton from his commentary. God's sovereignty over this judgment is stressed over and over They're not allowed to kill their victims. And in fact, the victims want to die and cannot. He says, imagine a pain so bad you want to die. Imagine the futility and frustration of not being able to find death. This text, Hamilton says, clearly says that human beings are not in control of their lives. God is. God is. He is for good or he is for ill. But God is in control. Quickly look at the carnage that is released. This is, in the first trumpet there, 
they are tormented and they seek death, but they're unable to find it. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Can you imagine? John MacArthur in his commentary talks about how people will want to commit suicide and they just won't be able to do it. It's interesting that all throughout their lives, people have sought life. They've sought life from idols. They've sought life from each other. They've sought life from, they're pursuing life. And now all of a sudden, and they can't find it, by the way, but they keep searching. And now at the end, they're searching for death. And they can't find that either. It's torment. And then in this, in this trumpet that comes there, in, in that sixth trumpet, it's this cumulative effect, okay? So in the, in the, first, in, in the fifth trumpet, that army, those demons are not allowed to kill. This 200 million is allowed to kill. And the carnage is something that we can't even imagine, I don't think. And some see this as a human army under demonic control. How Lindsay thought it was the Chinese army coming across. I mean, granted, the Chinese is a big enough population to put together a 200 million army. But the point is, this army is bringing death. And this description of these mounted troops, again, is this terrible apocalyptic vision of, of the suffering of hell itself, yet unleashed on earth. Heads of lions breathing fire, tails like snakes, un- unspeakable carnage and terrible just a terror of this that's coming. And, and what seems to, to be the effect, look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. And so these plagues is just a cumulative effect of what we've seen throughout the scrolls and throughout the trumpets. There was a plague on the trees and the vegetation. There's a plague on the oceans. There's a plague on the fresh water. There's a plague on the sun, the moon, and the stars, and it gets dark. There's a plague of the demons coming up out of the abyss. There's a plague of death. And the 200 million warriors killing untold billions of people. And the leveling of suffering on the earth is just incalculable. And it takes a toll one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And in that day, that's what it'll be. It's like, what else, what else is going to come? What else could possibly come? Which points us to the question that comes up there in verse 20. What else will it take? What will it take to bring us to repentance? What will it take to bring us to the place where we're ready to repent and turn from our idols and turn from our sin? What does it take to convince a lost person that they're lost and that they need to turn to Christ? D.A. Carson in one of his books says that part of the reality of the eternal nature of hell, eternal torment in hell, is because of the eternal nature of the rebellion. Of that hardened, degenerate heart. And this seems to indicate that even in hell, there will not be any repentance. So there, there will be no, nothing but, nothing but the punishment for that. The rest of mankind brings us to this last point. The calloused hearts of the unrepentant. And that's what it is. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. So I don't know the number who were not killed. But what we have here is the character of those who were not killed. Notice that it says they did not repent 
of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk. I love that comment put in there at the end. It's the same thing that Isaiah talks about. The foolishness of idolatry. If you're a rich man, you buy the gold and form up an idol that cannot talk or walk or answer. If you're a poor man, you get wood. But don't get wood that'll rot. It's embarrassing when your God's rot. Form up out of that wood an idol that cannot talk, cannot answer, cannot move. Idolatry is so stupid. And our idols aren't wood. They may be gold. And they will not repent. The guilt here centers around the Ten Commandments. Well, it goes even further than that. It centers around the two commandments that Jesus gave us. They don't love God and they don't love their neighbor. They don't love the first division. They, they don't worship God, so they're worshiping idols. They're, they're gold, they're silver, they're bronze, they're stone, they're wood. That's who they worship. And because they don't love God as they should, they don't love their neighbor as they should. So it says there that there's murders, there's sorceries, there's witchcraft, there's magic, there's sexual immorality, there's thievery, there's stealing. They cling to their addictions, they cling to their superstitions, they cling to their horoscopes, they cling to that which belongs to their neighbor. They cling to anything and everything except God. And it seems to go on for eternity. They will not turn no matter what is done. Which points to just the eternal nature of the brokenness and the sinfulness of that heart that will not turn to Christ. Later on in chapter 16 of Revelation, you can just look ahead. I'll just I'll read it to you. As the bowls of wrath are being poured out over in Revelation chapter 16. I was reading it earlier this week. <laughs> Fourth angel pulled out his, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Revelation 16, 8 says, They scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent or give Him glory. The next angel, the fifth angel in verse 10, poured out of his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. That's the hardened heart. And it will not repent. No matter what in his mercy, God would pour out on them inviting repentance. That was the message in Joel. God says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they're like crimson, they shall be as snow. This God of fierce judgment is a God of amazing grace and mercy inviting us to turn. Right quick, some applications from this chapter. And there are some. <laughs> you have them there in your sermon notes, I think. First one is this, you are safe if you are sealed. Who can stand? Well, this is the answer. Those who are sealed. Flee to Christ. He's the only place of safety. Satan, Jesus told us, Satan is a thief and a destroyer and a murderer. That's who he is. He seduces people. What's interesting here is that even those who serve him, he puts, he puts out there to be destroyed. 
He seduces people into serving them for serving him, and then he torments them as they do. Okay, Satan hates us. He hates life. He hates. He hate, even hates those who serve the beast, as we'll see later on. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. And those who reject Jesus are not sealed and are left unprotected. Flee to Christ. He took this wrath on himself on the cross so we don't have to be afraid of Revelation 9. Trust him. Number two. Church, it's important that we not be envious of the very things that the world around us will be judged for. In Revelation 9, we see what's coming to those whose lives are centered on their possessions, on their gold, on those things that orchestrate their priorities, on those things that captivate our love, captivate our, our affections. We, have, we don't need to have anything to do with any of this. The murders, the sorcery, the magic, the sexual immorality, it will be judged. So as God's holy, redeemed, sealed people, we don't need to envy that. We need to stay as far away from it as we can, which leads me to the third point. These people here who are unsealed are unrepentant. Repentance should mark the people of God. That should be the characteristic. Martin Luther said it. We should be a people marked by repentance. So as we read this horrific picture, as we see this and try to even in our minds imagine it, what should be the first call of God's people is, God, show me in my heart what might be some characteristic that is going to be judged this way, and please lead me to be free of that sexual immorality. Lead me to be free of that love of these things. Lead me to be free of all of these things that are going to, in the end, crush these souls. Soft hearts are what characterizes the saints. Number four... Jesus said in the beginning, I have the keys of death and Hades. He said that in Revelation 1. He has the keys. All right? Never doubt the sovereign hand of God controlling all things, including Satan. All right? Including him. No angelic being can harm any of God's people apart from God's sovereign purposes and permission. It doesn't happen apart from him allowing it. And I don't understand why sometimes, and I don't, and we don't have to understand why. We just need to know who. We need to know who. And our God is good, amen? And His purposes are good. And He is so powerful, He will use His sworn enemies to accomplish that good. Praise Him for it. And finally, number five, we don't know when, and we may not even understand fully what, but we've got enough of a picture here to understand how terrible it's going to be. And God is slow to move here. And that time that he gives us is time for repentance. It's time for us. It's time for tears. Our hearts are broken at the devastation we see around us. And I just put it down in the notes this way. Redeem the time and the tears of this world for the purposes of reaching our lost world. Redeem the time and the tears. The testimony of the suffering that comes upon us and how God is faithful to bring us through that is not so that people will see how strong and sincere we are in our faith. It is so that they will see the God in whom we trust. Amen. It is so that our testimony and our hope and our promise is so that we can point them to the reason for that hope. And that reason has a name and that name is Jesus. And he has conquered sin, death and hell. 
And he is sovereign over all that we see unfolding in Revelation chapter 9. And we want to love our neighbors into the kingdom and out of hell, right? We want to invite them, evangelize them. We want to reach the unreached nations so that they will stand before the throne one day and sing of a Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this hard word and we thank you for this horrific picture and we pray that it would be burned into our hearts. First, into our hearts as a reminder of your amazing grace that saves the redeemed from it, that seals us and protects us. And the Lord, we would, we would fear you as we should and run from sin, not flirt with it. And the Lord, we would run to our neighbor. We would run to those around us. With the good news that you are in Christ reconciling to yourself lost rebels and giving us time to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. Help us be faithful to take that message. Give us a sense of urgency about it, God. As we stand and sing in just a minute, I'll be down here at the front. I'll pray with you. I'll encourage you. I'll talk with you about your relationship with Jesus. Other members of our church are here to serve each other in that same way. Father, we just thank you and we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.